Good morning. Good morning. My name is Christian. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. Um, it's a pleasure to get to, to preach this morning. What we're going to be doing is we're going to be continuing our time in the book of Hebrews. And what I want you to do, even as I say a couple introductory statements, keep in mind what we were just singing. Did that conjure up in your mind, whether it was an actual picture or just the thoughts of Jesus high and exalted and lifted high at the throne of God right this moment? Hold that in your head because that's exactly where the passage we're going to look at this morning starts. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4, the last three verses, verses 14 through 16. Bear with me. I can hear my voice is already a little raspy. Hopefully it'll hold out. Maybe the 11 o'clock will get the whisper voice, but you guys hopefully will get to hear me. But... We've, been ta- we've taken a break the last couple of weeks from the book of Hebrews. And actually, as a matter of fact, starting next week, we're going to take a break again as we begin our Advent series. And I'll tell you more about that at the end. So stick around. Um, I-, I would just encourage you as-, as a regular practice, unless you absolutely have to leave for work or something, the end of the message is not the end of the service. So please stick around because especially after we sing a song at the end, we're going to be talking about what we're going to be doing at Advent time. And I'm excited about it. But I'm also really excited about what we're looking at this morning in Hebrews chapter 4 because I think it actually does a really good job of tying together both what we've been talking about over the last few weeks and then what we're going to be talking about next week starting with Advent. We've been talking a lot about rest the last several weeks. Chris hated such a good job the last couple weeks talking about how establishing regular rhythms of Sabbath rest, that one out of seven day rest, is one of the greatest ways that we can demonstrate that we trust in God to meet our needs, not just in our own efforts to meet those needs. That regular rest is a demonstration of trust. And as a matter of fact, it's also one of the greatest ways that we grow in our trust, in our faith. Remember that that quote that Chris shared with us last week from Hudson Taylor? I'm going to put it up on the screen for you. But how to get faith strengthened? How do we grow and strengthen our faith? Not by striving after faith, but by resting in the faithful one. I love that. We grow in our trust, not by trying to trust more, but by resting in the trustworthiness of God. And if that's true, then knowing God and knowing why he is faithful, how he's demonstrated his faithfulness, is of ultimate importance for our lives. And that's exactly what Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16 is all about. Would you read this with me as you you look along in your Bibles or up on the screens? Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need." That's what we're going to be looking about, these, these three verses this morning, that really, I would say, kicks off the main course of the meal of the book of Hebrews. In these verses, he, he really launches into this idea of Jesus as our high priest. He already introduced the idea of Jesus as high priest at the end of chapter 2 in the passage we looked at it several weeks ago when Spencer was up here teaching. But here's where he doesn't just mention it as something he's going to come back to. This is when he 
comes back to it. And he's going to spend from this point in 4.14, basically through the end of chapter 10, in this prolonged discussion of what does it mean that Jesus is our great high priest. This entire six-chapter section is about answering two main questions. First, what was the role of the high priests of Israel? And then second, how is Jesus' role as high priest even better? And he's going to talk a lot about that, and we're going to just try to get the ball rolling on that discussion this morning by looking from this passage at three aspects of Jesus' high priesthood and what they mean for us. And these are, here's the three aspects we're going to look at. Number one, if you're taking notes, this would be a good thing to write down. Number one, Jesus as our high priest has passed through the heavens. Second, as our high priest, Jesus is sympathetic and sinless. And third, Jesus, as our high priest, has made a way for us to draw near to God. That's what we're going to look at. And then by way of application, there's two commands in this passage that we'll unpack at the end. But first, in verse 14, what does it mean that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens? What does that mean? This entire three-verse section is really loaded with temple imagery, with tabernacle imagery. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about that tabernacle. The big idea is this. Just as the high priests of Israel functioned in the tabernacle that was built during the days of Moses in the wilderness and then later in the huge glorious temple that Solomon built in Jerusalem, just as those high priests functioned in those, that tabernacle, So Jesus, as high priest, functions in an even greater tabernacle. The tabernacle that God instructed the people to build in the book of Exodus was basically a big two-room tent in the middle of the tent city of the millions of people of Israel. I have a picture I'm going to show up on the screen for you. This is a cool painting, a rendering that somebody did. A friend of mine gave me a big poster of this when I graduated from college, and for years I had it up uh, in my office because I just loved how it's visualized. I loved the sunset kind of lighting, the little lamp lights and all the little tents, but the thing that draws your attention is that pillar of fire over the tabernacle representing God's presence as the great like spotlight in the middle of the camp of Israel. I've thought about it where if you were a kid growing up in the wilderness years of Israel and you woke up in the middle of the night, maybe because you had to go to the bathroom or something like that, the little bit of light that would come streaming in through the the whole slit of the door of your tent was not just the ambient light from street lights or things like that. It was the light coming from the glory of God dwelling over the tabernacle. What would that have been like? But basically, in the midst of this whole camp, it was this big two-room tent with a big courtyard surrounding it. You can go to the next slide real quick. This next slide kind of flips the perspective over a little bit and just shows us more of a floor plan of what was going on in that tabernacle area. We're going to leave this up just as I talk through these next couple things. In this tabernacle, the place where God dwelt in the midst of his people, the people of Israel were allowed to come into that courtyard on the outside as long as they were ritually pure, as long as there's nothing that had defiled them. They could come into that courtyard, but they could go no further than that big altar of burnt offering right after the entrance. 
And when they came to that altar, that's where one of the priests would assist them in offering up a bull or a goat or a ram or something like that as a temporary covering for their sins so that even in that separated way, they could dwell in God's presence. Only the priest could go further and pass into the first room of that tent, the holy place. They could go in there each day to trim the wicks of the, the seven-branched candlestick that was in there. And, uh, and, but they could go no further than that. Because the most holy place of the tabernacle was where the Ark of the Covenant was. That ark, that, that gold inlaid box with a solid gold lid that had two graven images of cherubim on the top with their rings outstretched. That solid gold lid, does anybody know what it was called? What was it? The mercy seat, exactly. It was called the mercy seat. And God said that within this whole tabernacle complex, right there between those cherubim, that's where I dwell. That's where the glory of God dwelt. In between the cherubim on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And only one person could go into that holy of holies, that most holy place to approach God's presence. The high priest. And only on one day of the year, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And only for one reason. To bring blood as a covering for the sins of the people. It worked basically like this. In Leviticus chapter 16, we read about the instructions for the high priest on the Day of Atonement. You can read it more later, but let me just summarize it for you. The Day of Atonement arrives. The high priest, first thing he does is he washes himself at that, that basin of water there between the altar and the holy place. He would put on his high priestly garments. Then he would go to the altar and he would sacrifice a bull. Then he would take some of the blood of that bull and he would pass into the holy place, then pass through the big ornate veil or curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And he would come into the very presence of God and he would sprinkle seven times some of the blood of that bull on the mercy seat. Then he'd go back out. And he'd come back out to the altar and this time he would sacrifice a goat. And he would take some of the blood of that goat and he would pass back through the holy place, through the veil, pass through the veil into the most holy place, and likewise would sprinkle the blood of the goat on the mercy seat. The first thing he did with the bull was to cover his sins, to atone for his sins. The second time he went in with the goat was to atone for the sins of the people. And once he had done that, he would go back out and he would not enter back into that most holy place for one full year until the next day of atonement came. And everything that he did on that day had to be done so carefully and so quickly because the high priest, for as high and lofty as his position was, was a sinful man just like the rest of the Israelites. And it was not safe for him to linger in God's presence. So he needed to get in Get out and do it right the first time or there would not be a second time. Now, when you pull this back for a second, you think about it in light of the overall biblical story. You think back to like what we read about in Genesis chapter 3, how God would walk with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day. And you go, hold on a second. This doesn't sound nearly as close and intimate compared to the way that God dwelt with his people before sin entered the picture the way that God dwelt with Israel in the tabernacle was much more limited and separated and 
frankly, really bloody. I've often thought that the job of an Old Testament priest in Israel would much more resemble a modern-day butcher than like what I get to do for a living. It was hard, bloody work, and it was all just to maintain a very limited interaction between God and his people. And all of that limitation was necessary because of sin. God created us in his image to share in his presence. But he also warned us that by disobeying him, it would result in death. Sin results in death. And God, being a just God, cannot just overlook sin. He must punish it and punish it with the severity that our sin deserves. This kind of offends our modern sensibilities. You read through some of the things that God had the people do to cover their sins, and it's like, man, God, you're kind of harsh. He's, he's, he's just got a short fuse, and he's, he's prone to overreacting, and so he says, here's what you got to do. More, I think what the issue is, is that we tend to downplay the severity of our sin. It's not really that bad. Just say you're sorry. That's what we do with our kids, right? Just say you're sorry and move on. But what we see so much through the form and structure of the tabernacle and what went on there is that our sin, our self-centered rebellion against God, our audacity to think that we know better than he does how to run our lives is really that bad. It is really that much of an affront to God's honor that he does punish it severely. But the other thing that we see in this tabernacle is that not only is God just and right to punish sin, he is also gracious and compassionate. He still wants to live with his people. He still desires a relationship with his people, even though they are unwilling and incapable of reciprocating that relationship. And so he sets up for Israel this whole elaborate system so that they can still be near him, even though they were rebellious and wayward. He sets up this limited access to his presence so that the glory of his presence and the ferocity of his anger towards sin would not vaporize them on the spot. And he gives them an elaborate system of animal sacrifices to provide temporary covering for their sin. It's basically like taking a shower. You're clean until you get dirty again, then you got to wash again. The blood of the animal covers your sin until you sin again. And so this is, can you imagine being a 60, 70-year-old Israelite standing there with your head or your hand on the head of another animal to sacrifice it, watching its lifeblood pour out before you, knowing that it is one of thousands and thousands of animals that have died because of your sin. You would see from that that sin is a very big problem. Everything about the tabernacle was meant to reinforce two seemingly irreconcilable truths. Number one, God wants to be with us. He does. But second, our sin creates deep, deep problems for that relationship. It damages that relationship in a way that we cannot repair in and of ourselves. Everything that God gave his people through the tabernacle and the sacrificial system was good and holy and wonderful and temporary. 
It was always meant to point towards something better. And what the author of Hebrews is doing here is showing us the better has come. In Jesus, the better has come. Look again at verse 14. Jesus, our great high priest, has passed through the heavens. Just as the priest would pass through the veil into the holy place, Jesus has passed through, not just into the holy place of the temple, but into heaven, the very presence of God. A couple chapters later, in Hebrews chapter 9, here's the way that the writer explains it. Hebrews 9.24, you can see this up on the screens. He says, For Jesus has entered, Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, the tabernacle and temple that were built by men, but he has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Into the very presence of God, not just with the blood of bulls or goats, but with his own blood. And unlike the former high priest who had to get in and get out as quickly and carefully as possible from God's presence, look at the way the writer describes Jesus' position in Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, verses 12 through 13. He says this, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. In coming into the greater presence of God to offer the atoning sacrifice for sin, he didn't have to get out and wait till next year. He sat down there in God's presence. Jesus Christ has entered into the presence of God in a greater way than any high priest ever has, ever. Because he is not just another high priest. He is the great high priest. He is the son of God. Look at verse 15. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is that second point, that Jesus as our high priest is both sinless and sympathetic. The sinlessness of Jesus as the high priest is in stark comparison to the previous high priest. If you look just the next couple verses after Hebrews 4, the first couple verses of Hebrews 5, here's what the writer says about the other high priest. Hebrews 5 verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. That's why the priest would go, high priest would go in first with the blood of the bull for his sin, and then the second time with the blood of the goat for the, the sins of the people. He had to do that, and not only that, he could sympathize with the people because he was a fellow sinner. But the difference between those high priests and Jesus is that Jesus is not a fellow sinner. He's still able to sympathize with us because he's been tempted in every way as we are, but he never gave in to that temptation. 
Now, some have argued on this point, asking the question, can Jesus really sympathize with us if he never sinned? Does he really know what it's like to be in our situation? I mean, yeah, he was tempted, but he never gave in. He doesn't know what it's like to give in. So does he really know what it's like to be in our position? It can be like in some ways be where if you're struggling with like substance addiction and someone who's never struggled with that before comes to you with all this advice about how to quit, you can be like, what are you talking about? You don't know what you're talking about. You've never dealt with this. Or if you can remember back to being in high school and that one kid in your class who ruined the curve for everybody else. Remember that? You have some really hard algebra test or something like that. And then afterward, they're sitting around the lunch table and you're going, oh my gosh, there's no way I passed that test. And that one kid who you know aces everything goes, oh man, that was a really hard test, huh? You're like, don't even start, man. Because you're going to pass and all of us are going to fail and you're going to ruin it for everybody else, right? Is that what it's like with Jesus? Is he the curve wrecker for us? There's a guy you might have heard of named C.S. Lewis who is pretty good with this whole words thing. And uh, in, in his book, Mere Christianity, he talks about this very issue. I'm going to read this. It's a little bit of a long quote, but it's so dang good. All right. He says this. He says, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving into it. He's writing during the time of World War II at this time. You find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply cannot know what it would have been like an hour later. Go on to the next one. I love this. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he is the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation really means. The only complete realist. In other words, Jesus is able to sympathize, sympathize with us precisely because he does not share in our weakness. Because he has not given in to temptation. He alone knows what it's like to fight the full force of temptation to the very bitter end. And nowhere do we see this reality more clearly and when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before his crucifixion. You remember that? After the Last Supper, instituting the Lord's Supper, washing his disciples' feet, they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus goes off by himself to pray. And he gets on his knees and he cries out and says, my father, is there another way? He knows that in just a few hours, the full wrath of sinful man is headed his way. And not just the wrath of sinful man, but even more than that, the wrath of God against the sinfulness of men is going to be poured out on him too. And it just about breaks him. He asks his father, is there any other way? My father, 
can this cup pass from me? Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And then he says again, my father, is there another way? He says a third time, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, if there's no other way around this, there's only to go through it, your will be done. He fought the temptation to exit his father's will to the very bitter end. And he stood up from his knees. He wiped the sweat and blood from his brow and he walked confidently and unwaveringly to his crucifixion. And our world and our lives have never been the same. Jesus fought the temptation to exit the Father's will to the very end. He is the perfectly faithful one. If for us it's not about striving after faith, but resting in the faithful one, do you see now what it means that Jesus is the faithful one? He was faithful to his father even to the point of death. And then three days later, he rose victorious over death. It could not hold him down. Forty days after that, he ascended to the right hand of God in heaven as our high priest, as the perfect once for all sacrifice to take away our sins. And then he got to sit down and stay there. And now Jesus our exalted great high priest looks to us and says, come with me. Come with me. Our great high priest has made a way so that we can now draw near to God like he has. Look at verse 16. This is that third main point. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We see here Jesus isn't the smart kid who ruins the curve for everybody else. He's not the one who succeeds and leaves us in our failure. But for all who trust in Jesus Christ, regardless of your background or your age or your race or your gender or your income level or your immigration status or your successes or your failures, whatever it is, for those who trust in Jesus Christ, he stands in heaven on our behalf, representing us to God. That's who he is. And because he has succeeded, we can share in his victory. We can draw near to God through him. As a matter of fact, you see that word that's put there, we're to draw near to the throne of grace. Many commentators think that with that phrase, throne of grace, the author is trying to make a direct connection between, or a direct connection to the mercy seat. That solid gold lid of the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence dwelt. He's trying to make that connection in the, in the minds of his people. The idea is not that like he's telling them to literally get, the ne- get on the next boat to Jerusalem and don't matter what anybody says, blow past security and make a run for the Holy of Holies in the temple. He's not saying that. But he's saying that just as Jesus has ascended to the very throne of God in heaven, so now we can follow him confidently. And do it confidently. This would have been completely mind-blowing to his Jewish audience. You mean to tell me that because of Jesus Christ, I can now have greater access to God than the high priest in Jerusalem? 
Yes. You can have greater access to God because you have a greater high priest. Jesus has opened up the way for us to draw near to God. Even more than that, Jesus is the way that we draw near to God. Remember what Jesus himself said in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is a very exclusive statement that Jesus makes right there. That he alone is the way to God. That is a verse that people throughout history have tripped over and said, I cannot accept Jesus because he says he's the only way. But I hope that from what we've looked at this morning, you see why he makes that claim. Jesus is the only way because he is the only great high priest. He alone is the sinless, sympathetic son of God who has wrestled with temptation all the way to the bitter end and knows it better than we do because he never gave into it. Jesus alone passed through not just the veil of the temple to go into the Holy of Holies, but into the very presence of God in heaven. And he's the only one who got to stay there, sit down and remain there. He alone sits exalted at the right hand of God. And he alone has made a way for sinful people like you and me to draw near to God through him. Jesus, our great high priest, has passed through the heavens. He is sympathetic and sinless. And he has made a way for us to draw near to God. So what do we do with this? I mentioned in the beginning, there's two commands in this passage. Look back at verse 14 and we'll look at the first one. Verse 14, he says, Since then, we have this great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Let's hold fast to it. Hold fast to the confession of your faith in Jesus Christ. Hold fast to the confession that he is who he says he is. That he is the Son of God. That he is the great high priest. That he is the Savior of all who believe. Because in holding on to Christ, you take hold of all the blessings that are in Christ. But likewise, if you lose hold of Christ, you lose all the blessings that are in Christ as well. He's reminding them yet again, don't move away. Don't drift. Don't neglect. Hold on to Jesus Christ. But how do we do that when we're weak? How do we hold on to him when we don't feel like we have the strength to hold on? When life is difficult? When we suffer? How do we hold fast to our confession of Jesus Christ when temptation seems relentless and victory seems impossible and we almost want to give in to temptation just to get a break from fighting temptation? You ever felt like that before? The fight is so hard, I'll just give in to it. I'll feel guilty, I'll confess, I'll find forgiveness. Um, all, all of that is true. But man, it misses the point. We follow the one who fought temptation to the end and never gave in. And he says, follow him, stick close to him. How do we do that? 
How do we hold on when we feel like we don't have the strength to do it? That's where the second command comes in. We just looked at it a second ago. Verse 16. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. When life is hard, when we feel weak, when temptation seems so strong, when guilt is crushing us, when doubt fills our minds, those are the exact moments when it is most important for us to draw near to God. And we're told, get this, we're told to draw near to God with confidence. Not cockiness. Not like, yeah, I deserve to be here, kind of like self-assured cockiness. But confidence that in spite of the fact that we are in no way worthy to be there, Jesus Christ and God the Father say that because of what Jesus did, we can come. He has made us worthy to draw near. We can draw near to God in confidence that even though we have no reason to deserve to be there, we are approaching a throne of grace. Do you see that? And look what we find when we approach that throne of grace. We receive mercy and we find grace to help in our time of need. Those two words, mercy and grace, are so powerful right here. They're, they're also very similar. They're kind of like two sides of the same coin and even sometimes used synonymously with each other. That these two concepts of mercy and grace encompass both the ideas of receiving goodness from God that we don't deserve and not receiving condemnation from God that we do deserve. It's both not, not getting what deserve and getting what we don't deserve. That the mercy and grace that we find when we draw near to God through faith in Jesus Christ both forgives our failures and empowers us to walk in faithfulness. It forgives our failures and it empowers faithfulness. That's the point of that last phrase, that in drawing near to God we find grace to help in time of need. That's not such a good translation because it almost makes it sound like God's on standby, right? Whenever you call me, I'll be there. Like he's waiting around for us to call him. If you get in a pinch, but then if you're doing good, he's a little bit like the Maytag repairman, right? Just waiting around for somebody to call. It's not the, it's not the sense of what's being said here is that if you're ever in a time of need, come to me. The point that's being made is we're always in a time of need. Every day, moment by moment, we are in constant need of God's grace. A better translation of this is not grace for time of need, but it's this idea of that we will find grace for timely help. Grace for, it doesn't read as well, but let me explain it for you. That in approaching God, we find grace for timely help. It, it's a little bit like, um, I got a lot of friends who are tool guys. You know tool guys? I love having a bunch of friends that are tool guys because sometimes I'll be doing some project around the house and I'll realize I don't have a tool that I need for the job. And so I'll send out a quick text message to a bunch of them and it's like the race to see who can reply first. Yeah, I've got one. I'll drop it off tomorrow morning. Yeah, I've got one. Come by and get it. Yeah, I actually have three. You can have one of them. And next thing you know, I've found timely help. I've found some, uh, the tool that I need for the job. As a matter of fact, that's what makes it where for some of these guys, Buying tools is almost addictive. 
because they love the feeling that whatever job they might need to do or whatever job anyone might need to do, they've got just the tool for the job. But that, I love that idea of timely help. That's what's being talked about here. We are constantly in need of God's grace, and his grace is always timely to the occasion. Our need for him always remains the same, but the circumstances and situations in which we need him change. And so our God, who knows all things, who knows our circumstances better than we do, says, draw near to me, and I will always have exactly the tool for the job. I will give you grace that is timely and helpful for the situation that you are in right now and tomorrow and next week and 10 years from now. There will always be, for those who draw near to God by faith in Jesus Christ, mercy to cover our failures and grace that is timely to our need. Amen? If you're here today, whatever circumstance you might be facing, However easy life feels right now or hard or darn near impossible life feels for you right now, I hope that you are encouraged today that you do not need to strive but rest in the fact that our God has the grace that we need. Whatever temptation you're fighting today, however quickly or frequently you've given into it, Jesus stands as our sympathetic high priest who knows even better than you do what it's like to fight temptation. And he has the mercy and the grace that you need both to forgive your sin and empower you to repent. Every day, every hour, an inexhaustible supply of grace for timely help is available for all who draw near to God through faith in Jesus Christ. If you're struggling right now, if you know you need God's mercy and grace, man, if you want someone to pray with you and help you to draw near to God, come on up to the prayer room when we sing a song here in just a minute. We'd love, we've got some folks who would love to. They want, they want to set aside their Sundays to pray with God's people. It's a beautiful thing. In the same way, if you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ right now, if you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, If today God is opening up your eyes to see Jesus clearly, maybe for the first time, and you want to talk with someone about what it means to follow this Jesus, I'd encourage you to come up to the prayer room as well uh, during this song. But for the rest of us, I'm going to invite the band to come up. We're going to sing a song together that confesses that we need God every hour, that he is our one defense, our righteousness. And if you've paid attention this morning, you see Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, we are in constant need of the grace that God has an unending supply of. So would you stand with me and we will confess together our need and God's ability to meet our need. Amen? Amen. Awesome. Thank you.